because we have spent so much time in recent years in these two uh, chapters, we, we took uh, several years to study church history because really that's what the Lord outlines for us here in these two chapters. The seven letters written to seven churches, and they are real churches that actually existed in 95 A.D. when John was actually receiving the revelation. And these churches actually received these specific letters from the Lord Jesus Christ, but placed into the context of the whole of the book of Revelation, those seven letters represent seven periods of, of church history. And so we were working our way through each one of those. We were on a roll. We were hitting one a week until we came to the Philadelphian church period. The Philadelphian church period was, without a doubt, the greatest period in the history of the church. It's a period that picked up uh, around 1500 or so. That's when it started getting steam. By around 1611 or so, it was really moving. And it, uh, it ended in 1900, more, even more specifically, 1901. And maybe when we get into Laodicea, we'll talk just a little bit about that. But during that period of time, it was the time of the, the greatest preaching that has ever been on this planet. And, and maybe it might be better said that even more so than just the fact that it was great preaching, maybe it was that the power of God was on the preaching during that period of time like at no other time. Men like Jonathan Edwards, and, and, and most of us got this in, in American history, he comes along and he preaches a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, do, we, do we sell that in the bookstore? Hello? Yes. Uh, you, you, can, you can buy it in the bookstore. You know what? It, it's probably not going to be on the bestseller list because I'll tell you what, it ain't that great. I, you know? I mean, if you, how many of you read it? Okay. I mean, did it blow your socks off? I mean, it's, it's, it's good. It's really good. But while the dude is preaching it, people are literally finding the pillars of the church to hold on to, and they are screaming to the top of their lungs because they were afraid that they were going to drop into the very pit of hell while he was preaching it. This, this is a fact. The message isn't that great, y'all. The power of God made it great, though. And that was what was happening in the Philadelphian church period. Unbelievable things. I mean, and you can read about the Welsh revival. And you know what, what, what would happen? Men of God would merely walk down the street. And people that would be coming the opposite direction would bust into tears and fall on their face in repentance because of the power of God that was so manifest in this period of time. And, and, and so we, we, we spent the time and we were going through these kinds of things historically. All of this that was happening, that the power of God on, on the preaching and God opening the doors to the world. And, and like at no other time, the missionary movement of the church is it's happening, man. I mean, people are coming to Christ literally all over the world. People are taking that book to the ends of the earth and, and, it's, and it's happening. But we happen to live in the period of time following the greatest time of church history. And it just happens to be the absolute worst period of time in church history. It, it's characterized, whereas the church at Philadelphia during the Philadelphian church period was characterized as the church of the open door. The church in what is called the Laodicean period, and you need to, if you're a guest, you need to become very familiar with that term this morning because we'll refer to it constantly. Laodicea is the seventh and last period of church history before the rapture of Jesus Christ, which is when he removes his people from off of this planet. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. It's pictured for you right there in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. But it is without a doubt the worst period of time in church history. It just happens to be the time, though, that Christians think is the best. You know why? Because they don't have a clue. And the truth of the matter is we in I, I, I throw my big, my big fat self right in the big fat middle of that whole deal. I am a Laodicean. 
Now, I, I have the barnacles of Laodicea on me. I fight with it every single week, and I pray to God that he'll remove those and chip those things off of me. But we've got to understand where we are in the period, this period of church history. God says it is a lukewarm church. He, he says it's sickening to my stomach. I'll, I'll spew you out of my mouth. But it's a church that thinks it's okay. It's a church that thinks that it's better than it is. It's a church that thinks that Jesus is right in the big, fat middle of everything that's going on. And Jesus says, I'm knocking on the outside of the door, wishing that I could get into the thing. It's a church that thinks it has the power of God. And so what we've been doing over the last several weeks, we've gotten held up here. I mean, it's one thing to go back and talk about all the glory of, of those things, and we're getting ready to move into the Laodicean church period. But for crying out loud, what, I mean, are we just to say, well, what a bummer. Man, we weren't born during that period of time, so I guess we just lost out. Let's just be Laodiceans until the rapture comes. Well, what we began to do is we began to say, you know what? There's probably some characteristics that that church had during that period that made God come down and be able to work through them the way that he did. And so what we did is before we started just jetting through the book of Revelation, we said, how is it that we can reside in a new Philadelphian church period even though we live in Laodicea? And so we began to, to just go to this letter written to the church during the Philadelphian church period. And we began to ask ourselves, what was it that was so significant about that church during that period? Are, are there things that those of us that are living in the Laodicean period, can we go back and can we look in this letter and can we begin to place our lives next to that thing and begin to see God do something in us to allow us to have that type of existence in our life so that we can be raptured off of this planet, something other than a Laodicean. And of course, we're playing off of the fact that God has somehow placed this church in a town that is called New Philadelphia. I mean, man, that ought to be a reminder every time that you talk about this church, First Baptist of New Philadelphia. May this be a New Philadelphian church that God plants in, in this place. And as I studied this, this passage and, and desperately wanting as a Laodicean to be something other than that and, and being one of the leaders in this church that is planted here. Now, oh, the thing that's so cool about this church is uh, almost 140 years ago. Next year, it'll be 140 years ago during the Philadelphian church period, God planted this church in New Philadelphia. And we're 100 and, almost 140 years removed from that now. But how is it as a church that we can, we can reach back and we can begin to see something happen in this place that can bring us to where we do have the power of God and God begins to open doors of evangelism for this church to the world and as I began to study this passage what, what I found is that there is at least five key factors that our Lord presents in this passage that were true of, of the believers in the Philadelphian church period and must be true of us if we're ever going to get from Laodicea to a new Philadelphian type of existence both as individuals and as a church, there, there's five of them, and we've had a real hard time getting off the first one. And we've spent several weeks now just on the first of the five factors. And the reason we've spent so much time, and you know what, I, I think it's all been a part of the plan of God with me coming in, going out, coming in, going out, because I believe that what God is trying to do here is say, now Mark, you are quite a reviewer, but I don't want you to review. I want you to reteach this stuff from a whole different perspective. There's some things I want to show you because we're not through yet with what this is. If we're ever going to get there, this, this first point is so foundational. I, I mean, you missed this one, and, and you know what? None of the other factors are even a remote possibility. You nail this one, and in time, the others are going to follow. So I, I've purposely wanted to, to make sure that we don't hurry past this, this first point but this first factor, Roman numeral 1 on your outline, it's found in verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. Now let me just mention to you the fact that in each of these seven letters, 
our Lord begins the letter the same way. He identifies or he commissions the writing of the letter to the particular church that he's addressing. And immediately after that, he presents himself to that church by identifying some aspect of his character that was pertinent to the the situation or the the characteristics of that time period. And and the point that I've been trying to get you to see is that if we're ever going to be what those believers were in the Philadelphian church period, we are going to have to know the Christ that they knew. And that's the first factor. We, we're going to have to know the Christ that they knew and put it on your Roman, Roman numeral one. The, the first factor that will remove or move us from Laodicea to a new Philadelphian existence is the Christ we know. The Christ we know. The, the Christ that Laodiceans claim to know is not at all like the Christ that is presented in verse 7. In writing this letter to this church in the greatest period of church history, our Lord writes to them and he says, These things saith he that is holy. Now now listen. That was the key characteristic of, of the Christ the Philadelphians knew. He was a Christ who was above all things supremely holy. And if we're ever going to experience what they experienced in their Christian life, the the Christ we know must also be seen in the fullness of His holiness. And that's letter A on your outline. We must have an overwhelming comprehension of His holiness. Now, Now let me ask you something. Have you ever been just absolutely overwhelmed in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ because of His holiness? I mean, just absolutely overwhelmed. If we're ever going to break out of the, the prison of Laodicea and into the glorious liberty of Philadelphia being absolutely overwhelmed at the holiness of Christ isn't something that we are going to be able to say, yeah, I I, I experienced that one time, you know, I was at the youth camp and, wow, the worship was so cool and it was just like I was right there with God. Or I remember, yeah, it was, was, man, ten years ago, man, it was a great time. I was in the Word. I was praying. And, man, it was just like I was in the throne room of God and I was so overwhelmed. No. We, we can't go back to some one-time experience. We can't go back to something that was ten years ago. The Christ that we must know, if we're ever going to get out of this trap of Laodicea, is a Christ that must be seen in His holiness every single day of our life to where we come before the Lord every single day and have an absolute reverence and awe because of Him, because of the simple fact and because of the incredible fact that He is holy. Oh, man. If you watch TBN, just do it for for fuel, okay? I mean, that's why I watch it, you know? There is basically 99% of the stuff on there is absolute trash that will corrupt your mind as far as the Word of God is concerned. But just this past week, Paul Crouch is, is working some guys on there and they're talking about their dad and, and he's, you know, kind of one of the heroes of the, the, the movement that, you know, is represented on, on that, that, that network and, and all of this kind of stuff. And they're talking about how that he, in the middle of the night, the Lord, the Lord himself now, comes into this guy's bedroom to wake him up because he wants to give him his word. He wants to give him a word. The guy wakes up and says, Not now, Lord. I'm too tired. Now, number one, I I don't need that cocky, maiming story to not believe that the guy, Jesus didn't come in. There may have been a spirit that came in his room. I'm not sure about that. But it wasn't the spirit of Jesus. I do know that. But if Jesus did come into the room, let me tell you, you ain't putting him off. 
if Jesus comes to your room, number one, you remember when you were a little kid, man, and you, you, you thought you heard somebody come in the door? What'd you do? I mean, that's what I did. I remember, and living in Miami, you don't want to, you don't want to be doing that. It is hot, man. But I remember, man, I, I'd, I'd throw the, the covers up over my head and I wouldn't move a muscle. Maybe they'll think I'm pillows or something, you know. And so, you know, I'm up there and I'm just you know, sweating like crazy and everything. I'm afraid to move. But Jesus comes in, buddy, you're looking for cover. In fact, the covers probably ain't going to do it. You're going to be trying to get it under that bed as, as quickly as you can. Well, sorry, that wasn't Jesus that came into the man's bedroom. But, but you see, we can conjure up a story like that in Laodicea because that's the kind of Jesus that we know. A Jesus that we can control. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. But the Christ in Laodicea is rarely a Christ whose holiness shuts anybody up. He is rarely a, a Christ whose holiness stops believers in their tracks. The Christ in Laodicea is rarely a Christ who is seen as so holy that our unholiness is laid bare before Him and we're, we're looking for cover. We're so disconnected from the need of, of our holiness that, that somehow we even miss the, the clear simple command of Scripture with regard to holiness that if we would just obey those, it would move us out of Laodicea and into a new Philadelphian kind of life. The first one, the first command that's been given us concerning holiness is to perform holiness. Perform holiness. That's the command of 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn back just a, a few pages to the left in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Let me, let me show you this. 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 15. Peter writes, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. We are to be holy. We are to perform holiness. And notice who the standard for holiness is. He says, as as he which hath called you is holy, you be holy like that. So be ye holy. And you see that the principle is this. What our comprehension of his holiness is will determine the holiness that we actually live out in our lives. You know why we Laodiceans have such a high view of ourselves? It's because we have such a low view of God. You know why we Laodiceans have such a high tolerance to sin in our lives? It's because we have such a low view of of the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, when you see Him for who He is, when you see Him for who He really is, you see yourself for who you really are. The layout of seeing problem is we never see ourselves because we never see Him. We never really see Him in the fullness of His holiness. You see, Laodiceans, what we, what we do is we make the standard of holiness the world. And, and as long as, as we're, we're just this side of the world, we're okay. We're all right. Because, you know, we're not like them. Uh, turn back to 2 Corinthians for a sec. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And look at verse 12. Now, I, 
I know how this goes. Sometimes we get in a race to get through the book of you know, Revelation or whatever it is we're studying. Now, now listen. If you have a hard time recovering the same point that we covered, let me just ask you, are you already so holy that you don't need the Word of God to do anything on you? Now, if you are, I'm sorry. You know, just see if you can use your neighbor's shoulder and take a nap or whatever, but probably most of us in here maybe need the Lord to do something maybe just a little bit more in us in terms of this thing of, of holiness. But look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. He says, For we dare not... Oh, man, don't, don't even go here. <laughs> For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And you see, the reason that it's so unwise is you're always going to find someone to compare yourself to who is worse than you. You know what? That's just human nature. You remember what the Pharisee did in Luke chapter 18 and verse 11? You know, he's over there working the prayer thing saying, whoa, check this out. <laughs> Lord, you know, it's really cool for me to be here, and I just want to thank you first and foremost that I'm not like that scuzzball right over there, that publican and sinner. <laughs> you see, that, that's, that's what we do, isn't it? The problem is the standard of holiness is not the publican. It, it's not the sinner. It's not your enemy. The standard for holiness is not your neighbor. The standard for holiness is, is not the people of this church. The standard of holiness is not your parents. The standard of holiness is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been commanded to be holy as He is holy. And, and listen, our problem as Laodiceans is we do not have an overwhelming comprehension of His holiness, our view of God is just too stinking low. We don't see Him as holy, so we don't see ourselves as sinful, and so we stay in the same Laodicean condition. If you're ever going to get out, if we're ever going to get out, we must first and foremost have an overwhelming comprehension of His holiness. But not only are we to perform holiness, we are to pursue holiness. And after you've written that, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Pursue holiness. Hebrews chapter 12. And look with me at verse 14. He says, Follow peace with all men and Holiness and the idea of following holiness is to pursue it. Okay, what, what do the cops say when, when they're following the suspect? Okay, uh, uh, yeah, we're in pursuit, right? Okay, we are commanded here to live in pursuit of holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And you see, the problem with Laodiceans is they don't pursue holiness. You know why? Because Revelation 3.17 says that spiritually we already think that we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. So what do I have to pursue? I'm already there. I'm doing just fine. I'm all right. Even though Jesus says in that very same verse there in Revelation 3.17 and you don't even realize that you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you see, if we realize that, if we realize that was our condition, then you know what we would do? We would live in pursuit of holiness. But because we think we're okay, there's no pursuit. We don't see the Lord the way that He is, and so we don't see ourselves the way that we are. We don't see Him in the fullness of His holiness, and so we don't see ourselves in the depth of our unholiness and our wretchedness. But not only are we to perform holiness and to pursue holiness, but according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we are to perfect holiness. Perfect holiness. And turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. 
Second Corinthians 7, verse 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, what promises is that? Okay, the end of verse 17, the promise that the holy God of this universe will receive us. I mean, check it out. And verse 18, the promise that the Almighty God says that He'll be a Father to us and we'll be His sons and His daughters. I mean, check that out, y'all. Wow, what a promise. I mean, can you imagine finding out about the Almighty God that is out there with all power and all holiness and we just have no way whatsoever of ever getting to know Him? And then all of a sudden you find out He's given you a promise. I'll receive you, and I'll be a father to you, and I'll make you not only my people, I'll make you my sons and my daughters. Whoa! Having therefore, verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Here it is. Perfecting Holiness in the fear of God. And the idea of perfecting holiness is that the longer that I go in the Christian life, the more conformed into the image of Christ I ought to become. The life that I lived this week should be more holy than the life that I lived last week because I'm perfecting holiness. I'm moving closer and closer to this thing. I ought to be more holy today than I was six months ago. And certainly more than I was six years ago. But you see, that's not the way that it happens in Laodicea. Somehow it is in the Laodicean church period. The more we learn, the longer we go, the more accommodating to sin we become. And you know why? It's right there. The end of verse 1. We have a hard time perfecting Holiness in Laodicea for the simple reason that we don't fear God. Hello? He says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Listen, if you don't fear God, you never perfect holiness. And you see, the Christ that the Laodiceans know it is an ear-tickling, back-scratching, soft-soaping, divine rabbit foot. He just kind of goes with the flow. And nobody fears him. But you look at what the response was of those who saw the risen and glorified Christ in all of His holiness in the Word of God. And I'll tell you what, they feared him, buddy. Oh, buddy, did they fear Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 1.26, When I saw it, I fell on my face. Isaiah saw it in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, and, and he said, Then said I, Whoa, is me, for I am undone. In other words, I'm disintegrated. I'm annihilated. I'm blown away. In Revelation chapter 1, John saw the risen and glorified Christ and he said in verse 17 of that same chapter, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I was afraid, John said, I was afraid to move a muscle. I was afraid to breathe. It's like I was talking about a few minutes ago. What would happen to you if Jesus really came in your room? I mean, you're just afraid to move. John says, I was, I was speechless. I was just like Ezekiel, man. He says, I fell at his feet. Now, Isaiah, he said, I, I was just like Isaiah. I, I was annihilated. I was undone. All of these guys that really saw the Lord in the fullness of his holiness, you know what? They were absolutely scared out of their wits. And let me tell you, when we lay out a sea and see the Lord Jesus Christ like that, and we live in full comprehension of His holiness, you know what will happen? The fear of God will begin to come inside of us. 
And when the fear of God comes inside of us, you know what we'll do? We will perfect holiness, but not until then. Again, I'm asking you, have you ever, the Christ that you know this morning, have you ever been in His presence absolutely annihilated? And you see, I'm not trying to dog you. I'm, I'm trying to just begin to, to show you biblically where it is that we need to, to move, where it is we need to go so that we don't go out of this planet a sorry, stinking, lay out of sea and lot. But not only do we need to perform holiness and pursue holiness and perfect holiness, Hebrews 12.10 says we need to partake of holiness. Partake of holiness. Turn back to Hebrews 12 again. Now, the, the context here in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12 in this passage, the context is the chastening of the Lord. Look, in, look at verse 6. It says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Okay, and, and then down to verse 9. What he begins to do here is he begins to contrast the chastening of our heavenly Father with the chastening of our earthly fathers. And verse 10 says, For they, okay, now that's our earthly fathers, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. Okay? But he, that, that is our heavenly Father, he, he chastens us for our profit. Watch this now that we might be partakers of His holiness. Did, did you know that, my fellow Laodicean brother and sister? Did you realize that God brings chastening into our lives so that we might be partakers of His holiness? Did you know what the Laodicean problem is? We don't associate the events of our lives that God brings in as chastening, we don't associate those with chastening. And so we never learn what it is that God wants us to learn, and we never actually partake of holiness. There, there's a disorder that has been diagnosed in the last several years in the Laodicean age. Okay, this is I'm not talking about in a spiritual sense. I'm talking about in... I guess this is a psychological sense, and so I don't, you know, since it's Laodicea and all of this, I don't know how much stock to put into this kind of thing. But it's called attention deficit disorder, okay, ADD. And again, I don't know how legit, legitimate the whole thing is. Sounds a little bit bizarre for me, but what I'm told is that these children, their problem, these kids that have ADD, their problem is not not so much that their parents aren't chastening or aren't aren't disciplining them. Their problem is that when their parents chasten them, they cannot associate what is taking place as they're being chastened. They can't associate that with the offense. So they keep doing their offense because they don't associate the chastening with those things. Now again, I don't know how legitimate that is, but I do know that in the spiritual realm in Laodicea, we are a bunch of attention deficit disordered people. And somehow it, it is, we don't become partakers of His holiness because we don't connect the things that God is bringing into our lives as His chastening. And, and you see, the, the whole plan with chastening is, is this. The plan is, the chastening comes and it begins to cause us to look at our lives and we begin to cry out to the Lord what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and, and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And, and so you see, we, the chastening comes. We begin to search our heart. The Lord shows us where our lives are being lived in violation. We confess 
the sin. We make the changes in our lives necessary to correct the problem. And you know what the result is? We become partakers of His holiness. You see, that's what, that's what Hebrews, Hebrews 12.10 is all about. The chastening comes so that we'll learn from it. The only problem is all this stuff, I mean, life for a lot of us is falling apart. I guess these circumstances, I guess it's just bound to happen. We're not really understanding God's pulling out all the stops around us so that we'll go, God, what's going on here? Try me. Show me what's going on so that I can deal with it. We never deal with it because we never stop to connect what's going on. Now, let me tell you what else is the way I see in promise. All the wrong people are going to respond to what I just said. The people who are constantly searching their hearts and are pursuing holiness and perfecting holiness and partaking of holiness are going to be going, oh my goodness, there must be more junk in my life. And all of the people that should be saying that are going to be going, that must be for everybody else. I'm telling you, that is Laodicea. The wrong people come forward. But there's one more, okay? If we're ever going to get from Laodicea to New Philadelphia, first of all, we've got to get finished with this message, right? (laughs) Tell me you don't believe that. (laughs) We must perform holiness. We must pursue holiness. We must perfect holiness. We must partake of holiness. And one more, we must put on holiness. And turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 24 it says and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness and again it's real difficult for Laodiceans to put on true holiness now they they go through a lot of junk that is pseudo holiness but not putting on true holiness you know what we try to do we try to put on holiness without putting off unholiness you you following what I'm saying we keep reading the Bible and we keep studying the Bible and we keep praying and we keep discipling and we keep coming to the church services and loving that music. Ain't that worship cool? And we keep lifting our hands and closing our eyes without ever dealing with sin. Look back at verse 21. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation. And that's how you used to live. The old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You see, what we keep doing is we keep, we, we keep living these corrupt lives according to deceitful lust and we can never attain true holiness because we're doing everything that we know to be doing. We're already praying. We're already reading and studying the Bible. We're already discipling. We're still we're already doing all the stuff they're telling us down there at the church we're supposed to do. But you know what the problem is? We're putting on holiness. It's not true holiness. You know why? Because we're not putting off the old man. We're not putting off unholiness. You know why, don't you? It, it goes back to the, the main point. We don't see ourselves being as sinful as we are because we don't see Him as holy as He is. We don't have an overwhelming comprehension of His holiness. But listen, folks, if we're ever going to get out of Laodicea and into new Philadelphia, that is absolutely essential. But He doesn't just present Himself to this church as holy. Verse 7 goes on to say, These things saith he that is true. 
And the point I'm wanting you to see here is that if we're ever going to get from Laodicea to New Philadelphia, we must also have an unqualified surrender to his truth. You, you see, w- one of the things that made the Philadelphian church period what it was, was their response to the truth of the Word of God. Their response was like the response of the psalmist in, in Psalm 119 and verse 48. Turn back there if you would. Psalm 119 and verse 48. You, you want to know, know why the power of God was on their life? You want to know why God was opening the doors? Oh, listen. They lived with an absolute understanding and comprehension of just how holy He was. And when the Lord spoke truth, they believed it. They, they, they had an unqualified surrender to truth, like what you see the psalmist say that he had in verse 48 of Psalm 119. He says, My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved. Now, he, he, he says, My hands I lift up unto thy commandments. Now, if we took the time, we don't have the time to, to trace this thing biblically of, of lifting your hands to the Lord. The Scripture does tell us in the book of Timothy that, that he says, I command all men everywhere to lift holy hands to the Lord. But if we were to begin to trace this thing biblically, it would become very obvious to us that there is nothing spiritual in and of itself in lifting your hands. It is to be representative of something spiritual. Uh, Turn over real quick to Lamentations. It's right after the book of Jeremiah and right before Ezekiel. Lamentations chapter 3, and let me just show you this so that you can understand what David is saying here and what the Philadelphians experienced back in that period of time. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 40. It says, Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Okay, now in other words, let's let the Lord show us where we've blown it and let's get our hearts right. Okay, and verse 41 says, Let us lift up our hearts with our hands unto God in the heavens. In other words, let, let's show the submission of our hearts to the Lord by lifting our hands to Him. You, you see, the, the lifting up of, of, of the hands is to be representative of the submission of the heart. What, what do the cops say when they've got the guys surrounded and they want a peaceful ending? All right. We've got you surrounded. Come out with your hands up. I mean, do they just kind of get off on seeing the guy with his hands? We love that. That's cool. Oh, yeah. Get a picture of that there, Tony. You know, they want, they want, to, they want to see that there's nothing you're holding on to. They want to see surrender. They want to see submission. And, and, and you see, it's not like God's up in heaven, you know, and God gets off on, oh, Michael, check it out. They got their hands up. <laughs> oh, I love that. It, it, no, you know what? Having your hands up, it may be an affront to God if it's not representative of what's in the heart. Submission. Of, of your heart. And, and David, what, what he says, go back there. <laughs> what he says is, I lift up my hands to your commandments. You got it? You, you know what he was saying? Before I even come to your word, Lord, I submit. Whatever you say, I believe it. Whatever you show me, I'll do it. Whatever you ask of me, the answer is yes. 
whatever it means I have to change in my life, I'll change it. Whatever it costs me, I'll pay it. See that? I lift up my hands to your commandments. I, I don't come to this book hanging on to any of me. Unqualified surrender to his truth. That's the way that David responded to the word. And oh, listen, that was what was happening during the Philadelphian church period. Our brothers and sisters lifted up their hands to that book. James 1.21 says, Receive with meekness the engrafted word. You know what receiving it with meekness is? It's lifting your hands to it. It's unqualified surrender. God says, now listen, my book. Receive it with meekness. Not holding on to anything. Not with a stiff neck. With meekness. Jesus says there in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 to this church, these things saith he that is true. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 says, let God be true. And every man a liar. And that was what the Philadelphians believed, that God was true. And, and listen, if man didn't line up with what he that is true said, you know what Philadelphians believed? They believed that that man was a liar. They didn't buy in to the Christianity of their day. They didn't buy in to the world and the voices of the world in, in their day. But you see, Laodiceans do. Laodiceans. They don't have the same kind of response to the truth. Remember how we, we talked about that in each of these letters written to these, these seven churches, that each of these, uh, the, the names of these churches is significant in that it is a one-word capsulization of the chief characteristic of that period of time as God looked into that period. Remember what we said that Philadelphia, the, the name Philadelphia means, you, you know this, it, it means brotherly love. Laodicea, it means the rights of the people. Philadelphia. The Philadelphian church period was characterized by love for others. The Laodicean church period is characterized by love for self. Go, go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for a sec. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. It says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And what he does from that point is he goes on to list some 20 different characteristics of the Laodicean church period. This know also that in the last days. Okay, that's Laodicea. And the, the, the first thing on the list is in verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And, and let me just tell you, the love of self in Laodicea clouds the eyes of our understanding when it comes to truth. We're so in love with self, and we've so bought into all of the self-isms of our day that we cannot go to the Word of God and actually see it as truth because we still got self ingrained in us in all kinds of different ways. And you know what? We don't have time to go through that, that list of all of that. What that is is the word self and with a lot of other things. And 
maybe one of these days maybe you know what bring that with you next week and maybe we'll use that as the intro into our message but there's a third way that Christ presents himself to this church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 if you go back there now okay now are, are, you, are you catching this the Lord is addressing this church in Philadelphia we're sitting over here in Laodicea and we're trying to say oh man what was going on back there how can we become what they were and we've got to begin to see the Lord Jesus Christ for who he really is that's the Christ we must know a Christ who is holy a Christ who is true but there's a third thing a third way that he presents himself to this church in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7 look at it he says these things saith he that hath the key of David and then he defines it for you okay he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth okay and, and the point here is if we're ever going to get from Laodicea to New Philadelphia the third thing about the Christ we must know is that we must have an utter dependence upon his authority and access upon his authority and access you see now that's that's significant okay we're, we're filling in our little blankies right now but let me tell you why that's so significant it's so significant because in Laodicea we don't have time to mess with him we don't have time to wait on him you see Laodicea we're perfectly content with trusting our own talents trusting our own gifts trusting our own abilities we think that we can pull this this thing of reaching the world off you know why Philadelphia reached the world because they had an utter dependence upon his authority and access now, now listen very carefully he says the key of David the key of David as we're getting ready to see is a symbol of authority and access and we know that both biblically and historically and I want you to show you this biblically first turn back to the book of Isaiah if you would the book of Isaiah <clears throat> chapter 22 Yeah, you can tell Mark's back. Long services again. Thank you. <laughs> Isaiah 22. And let, let's pick up in verse, verse 20. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle and I will commit thy government into his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah and the keys of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder so he shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open you see do you see where the Lord was pulling that from there in, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7? And I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he, and he shall be for a glorious throne to his father's house. <clears throat> and they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue, all vessels of small quantity, from the vessels of cups, even to all the vessels of flagons. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the nail that is fastened in the sure place be removed and be cut down and fall and the burden that was upon it shall be cut off for the Lord has spoken it and what we find in this passage is that this man Eliakim that you see there in verse 20 he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and Eliakim he had the key to all of the treasures of the king that's what he's talking about there in in verse 24 of all of the vessels of all of the treasures of the king he's the one that had the key 
And when he opened the door, what the Scripture says here, it was open. And when he shut the door, it was shut. You know why? He was the man. He was the man. The key of David, verse 22, says, was laid upon his shoulder. Access to those treasures were placed under his authority. And again, he's a type of Christ. Because Revelation 3, 7 says that Christ is the one who has the key of David. And, and you see, now, now, now check it out. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a, in a field, to which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. And what is the field in the Bible? Matthew thirteen thirty-eight tells us it's the world. Okay, so you got this field, and there's a treasure in it. You know what that treasure was? That treasure was people. In Hebrews chapter twelve and verse two says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, shedding His blood to buy, giving His all to buy the redemption of the whole world. You following? And Jesus said back in Revelation 3, 7, I'm the one with the key of David. I'm the one with the key to the treasures of the world. I'm the one with authority. Matthew 28, 18. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I'm the one with access to the world. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Mark 16. Go ye into all the world. And, and listen, folks. In the Philadelphian church period, do you understand what was happening? The Lord Jesus Christ laid the key of David on their shoulder and granted them access to the world. He opened the doors, and doors in the Bible, every time you see them in the New Testament, they are consistently used in reference to an opportunity for the Gospel. And you see, that's why... The Philadelphian period was the time of the greatest missionary movement, the time of the greatest revivals, the time of the greatest preaching with the power of God. You know why? It was because they had the key of David. And listen, if we are ever in this Laodicean age, if we are ever going to see Him grant to us authority and access to this world, it's going to be because we, like the church in the Philadelphian church period, because we have the key of David. And I want you to know something. The Lord is still laying the key of David upon the shoulder of churches. You see, that's, that's the hope we have. You know what, guys? If he ain't, let's just close up shop and forget it. But you know what? Let's just close up shop and forget it if we're going to be laid out of sea and, and the door is just absolutely slammed shut. Man, let, let, hey, let, let's don't just keep spending our time you know, running into closed doors. I mean, it's stupid. It's, it's senseless. We, we must have the key of David and the, the most blessed thing in all the world is the Lord will still give that key. I mean, there, there's... There's certain places where he'll give that key, but understand, there's a condition. Notice that, it, that it's called the key of David. Now that's significant. Why would he call the key that opens doors of access and opportunity to the gospel to the lost people in the field that is called the world that the Lord Jesus Christ treasures so much? Why would he call it the key of David? You know why? It was because David was the man after God's own heart. He's the only one in the Bible that that was ever said of. And that key 
the, the key that opens doors that no man can shut and shuts doors that no man can open comes to the people who have the heart of David. Do you understand that? That's what the Philadelphian church period had. It wasn't like, wow, such a mystical thing that was going on back there. All of these great things happening around the world. No. The significant thing was they had the key of David. That's what was happening. Something supernatural was going on. They had the key of David. And God was opening doors for the gospel all over the world. And he still wants to do it, but there's a condition. You've got to have what David had. And you see, the, the key to David's relationship with the Lord was his heart attitude. But if you study the life of David, and, and many of you have, and if you study the writings of David, you know what? It, it reveals something very interesting about what it was that made his relationship to the Lord so unique. I mean, here is David. He is the man that is after God's own heart. Okay, what was it that was, that was key about that relationship? You know what the, the, the key to his relationship with God was? It wasn't just his heart attitude. It wasn't just his heart attitude toward God. It was his heart attitude toward this book. Time is just really fleeting by. But, but turn back to Psalm 119. Now, you know that David was a man after God's own heart, and, and you know that David certainly loved him. I mean, you know David loved the Lord, but you know what is absolutely amazing? In all of the Psalms, I mean, in the Psalms are where David is just absolutely pouring out his heart to the Lord. But do you know how many times in the writings of David you can find that he actually expresses his love for God? I mean, if we stretch it, we can come up with two. And I say stretch it because they're not actually the, 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 the expression of David's heart to the Lord. He says in Psalm 118, verse 1, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. I, I mean, come on. I mean, that, that's, that's cool, but I mean that, it's not really an expression of his heart. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. And in Psalm 116 and verse 1 says, I, I love the Lord because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. That's beautiful. But again, it's not really the expression of his heart to the Lord. But oh, listen. Do you realize that in Psalm 119 alone, he expresses his love for the Word of God ten times in this one chapter. And, and I, wanted to, I wanted to work you through all of those. You can jot down these references. Verse 47, verse 48, verse 97, verse 113, verse 119, verse 127. 140, 159, 163, 167. In every single one of those verses, in this one psalm, David just keeps saying over and over and over, I love this book. I love the Word of God. I love these commandments. Listen, that was the key. Right, oh, please, would you please hear what I'm saying? That was the key to David's relationship to the Lord. It was his heart attitude toward this book. Folks, David loved the Word of God. And listen, that's what happened to our brothers and sisters in the Philadelphian church period. Would you listen to this? The Lord placed... You don't have to like this. But it's true. The Lord placed this very book in their hands. The King James Version of the Bible. He placed it in their hands. And you know what happened to them? They got it. And they fell in love with it. And you know what happened? It became...
became the key of David in their hand. And folks, oh, please, please listen. I, I know, I know that it, I know that it's late right now. But, but listen, in the last six, seven, eight years or so, oh, God has done such a, a powerful thing in, in this church, an unbelievable thing. I, our attitudes have changed about this book. And I think we believe this book. And, and I think we trust this book. And, and I think we respect this book. I mean, the Lord has shown us things in the last couple of years around here from, from this book to where, you know what, we just absolutely stand in awe of this book. I think we revere this book. I'm just not so sure really love this book. Maybe you do. But, but respecting, revering, believing, trusting, it's not loving. The key of David comes to those who love this book. And oh man, I'll tell you what, with what little love I do think that we've expressed concerning this book, oh my goodness, hasn't it been just unbelievable what we've been able to see in the, the church period of the closed door? Hasn't it been amazing the open doors that have, that have happened through this church? Could, could we do this? If, if you have been on foreign soil somewhere in the last five years of your life through this church, would you, would you raise your hand? Is that wild? You know what that is, guys? It's God just giving us Laodiceans just a, a little glimpse of what it could be. And the key of David on our shoulder and we stop trusting in our incredible strategy and our money and our abilities and our gifts and we have an utter dependence upon his authority and his access and we say oh God we want to fall in love with this book and we'll make that our focus. And would you take it and would you make it the key of David in our hands so that we can see Philadelphia, new Philadelphia, be in this place even though we're in Laodicea. Your heads bowed and, and eyes closed.